Good morning. I tell you what, I was sitting over there and I was thinking, man, it would be really good to preserve my voice right now. I, I probably don't need to sing along. It, whenever I speak, I always try to be quiet as much as I possibly can because I know I'm going to be speaking for a good 45 minutes to an hour when I get up here. But uh, no, hopefully it won't be that long this morning. But it's hard not to sing along with that song. It's hard not to sing along. It's hard not to sing loud with a song like it is well with my soul. Um, this morning, as, as they've mentioned, I hope you haven't missed it, I'm not David Crosby, although I'm embarrassed to say my hairline is very similar. Um, I, I've got a good, hopefully, you know, 40 years on David Crosby, but I'm glad, well, not 40 years, probably about 30 years on David. Don't tell him I said that. But um, I'm glad to be here this morning. I'm excited about sharing with you what God has had on my heart. Um, and this morning, I really want to ask you a question. And it's a question that I hope you'll think about this morning as I'm preaching, but it's a question I hope you think about as you go about your daily lives over the next year, over the next few years, for the rest of your life. And it's, what do you see? What do you see? Now, this morning, I've got a couple slides. I want to get us warmed up to this idea of what do you see. And I hope these slides illustrate a principle that I think is very important about how we see things and what we see. So, Eric, if you'd throw up that first slide. All right. Now, when you look at this, all right, this is a test here. When you look at this, what do you see out there? What does anybody see? You see six. You see six. Does anybody not see the number six? Raise your hand if you don't see the number six. I can stare at this picture all day long, and I see nothing but a bunch of dots on this page. I see nothing but a bunch of dots. I can tell that it's different colors or different shades of colors. It looks like a lot of greens and things to me, but I do not see the number six. I don't see the number six. Why don't I see the number six? Because I'm colorblind, right? I'm colorblind. I'm red, green, colorblind. And for you out there that are colorblind like me, people don't really understand colorblindness. You know, you tell them you're colorblind and they're like, you can't see colors. It's not really like that. I can see the colors, but for some reason with red and green, I cannot delineate between the two. And so when I look at that, when I look at this ball of little color dots, I can't see anything. All I see are the dots. And what I want you to see from this is that although we're looking at the exact same thing, although we look at the same image, we're not seeing the same thing. We're not seeing the same thing. We're seeing something totally different. I've got a few more slides I want to show you this morning. So go to the next one. Does anybody recognize this? What do y'all think that is? Is that a bat? You think it's a bat, maybe a butterfly? This is actually one of the easiest ink blots um, in the Rorschach test. Now, for you psych and counseling people out there and for others of you who are very smart just in general, this is the Rorschach test. It's, it was a test that came about early in the 20th century um, because this guy thought that what you see, what you see could tell could tell him something about you. What, what you see when you look at this, because people see different things when they look at ink blots, what you see can tell a little bit about what you're feeling or what you're thinking or how you react, different things like that. That's the easiest one. Let's go to the next one. All right, what do you see when you look at this one now? That's a little more difficult. And be careful how you answer, because how you answer, supposedly, how you answer to this can tell how you react to things like aggression and anger and, and how you treat those things in your life. All right, let's move on to the next one. All right, this is what they call the relationship ink blots. All right, now when you look at this, the most important thing to do is to see something quickly. Because if you're sit, still sitting there right now and you haven't decided what that really looks like, you probably have trouble with social interactions. All right, so people, 
your friends, your friends are probably embarrassed to tell you, but I just told you now, so without really embarrassing you. So if you had trouble deciding what that is, you may be, you may have some problems socially. All right. And then let's look at, let's look at the last one. All right. Now this last one is called the father, the father slide. And this one tells you, depending on what you see, depending on the trouble you have identifying this slide, you may have trouble with authority, you may have trouble with men in general. So women, if you, if you didn't see this one very well, there's probably a reason for that. But uh, this is called the father slide because it kind of looks like an authority figure or something standing up. Um, that's all the slides I have for you. That's all the fun we're probably going to have today. But, uh, but I wanted to show you those slides because I wanted you to get an idea that man, when, when we look at something, when we look at something and we look at something that somebody else is looking at, we can see two totally different things. We can see three totally different things. Just because the image stays the same doesn't mean we see the same way. And you know, people have thought that is significant. They thought, man, in medicine, it's significant what you see. It can tell maybe how you feel, how you react, maybe some problems you have um, psychologically or socially. But this morning, what I really feel is important is what we see when we walk out those doors. What we see when we walk out those doors. When you walk outside, when you go to work, when you go to school, when you walk around your neighborhood, when you're driving in your car, what do you see? What do you see out there in the world? And for Christians, I think it's extremely important that we see what Jesus sees. Because it would be terrible if we walked out that, those doors and we were looking at the same world that Jesus looked at. We're looking at the same world that he looks at today and we see two totally different things. And so this morning I want to look at a passage. It's a passage in Matthew chapter 9. Um, and so if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to read 35 through 38. It's a familiar passage, but it's a significant passage because I think it shows us it shows us, it gives us an inside look, a picture of how Jesus sees the problems of the world, how he sees the problems of society, and more importantly, how he sees the people affected, how he sees the people affected. So we're in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. The words are on the screen as well if you want to look up there. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This morning, I think it's important what we see because I believe the more clearly we see, the more fervently we'll pray, and as a result, the more effectively we can act in this world around us. And so if we want to see more clearly, if that's the goal this morning, if we want to see more like Jesus, I think there are three actions that we need to consider. Three things we need to look at this morning that Jesus does in this passage, and that we need to say, man, is this true in my life? Am I doing these things? Because if we are, I think we'll see more like Jesus, we'll see more clearly. The first thing, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to open our eyes. We've got to open our eyes. Now, right off the bat, you're thinking, man, that's not too difficult. I, I may not can do much of the stuff Dr. Crosby asked me to do on Sunday morning, but I can do that. I can open my eyes. And you're exactly right, because the physical act is very easy. The physical act is very easy. As a matter of fact, I'm looking around the room. I've probably got 
90% of the eyes right now. They're all open. They're all looking at me. Y'all are doing great. This physical act is pretty easy. Now, in 15 minutes, I'm going to check back, and we may have to go back over this again because it may not be quite as easy. But right now, I've got your eyes. They're open. Um, It's not difficult. But I'm not really talking about the physical act this morning. There's more to seeing than just the physical act of, of lifting your eyelids. And I want to illustrate that for you. We'll do a little poll this morning. How many of you people in here would say, I'm a sleep talker? Raise your hand if you're a sleep talker. Anybody in here? A few in here? We got any sleep walkers? Maybe a few sleep walkers too. Um, how many of y'all are married to a sleep talker? Because that's, that, that's <laughs> more hand shot. I don't know how that works. Uh, that's, that's the situation I'm in. I am, I am married to an avid sleep talker. Now, I hope they told you they were a sleep talker or a sleep walker before, before you got married because uh, it can cause some problems sometimes. For instance, my wife, she, uh, she likes to sleep talk. Now, I haven't seen her sleepwalk. She may do it without me knowing. I don't know. She did it when she was younger, I know. But, um, but just to illustrate this, a few months ago, a few months ago, I was laying in bed at night, and I was dreaming, okay? And I had this crazy dream, and this is going to freak you guys out. I don't watch scary movies. So I don't think I was just watching scary movies. This was in my head. I had this dream that Rachel was possessed, okay? I had this dream that Rachel was possessed, and you can imagine that's a scary thing. And so in the dream, I remember this pretty vividly. I'm like shaking her. I'm shaking her. She's possessed. She's scared me, you know? And I, and I wake up, and it's about 3 in the morning. I wake up, and I'm like, Phew, man makes me feel better. And I'm laying in bed and I'm trying to go back to sleep, but my eyes are just open a little bit. I'm still a little shaky. My heart's beating a little bit fast. And out of nowhere, I'm serious, this is the craziest thing. Out of nowhere, I'm just sitting in bed, laying there. Rachel jerks straight up in the bed, okay? She jerks straight up in the bed and she starts dying laughing, just out of nowhere. I'm talking about, ha, 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 ha. You know, like out of nowhere, she is dying laughing. And, and, and then just as quick as she did it, she only laughed for a few seconds. She lays right back down and goes right back to sleep, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but I was, I was, I was floored. I was laying in bed. I literally did not go to sleep for like an hour and a half. I was, I was so scared after that. I was like, man, this is the craziest thing. Uh, and I wanted to wake Rachel up and, and uh, tell her and snap her back into reality, but I was afraid what she would do to me if I woke her up. She'd be scarier then, I'm sure. But, um, but anyway, what I, what I want to tell you about that is what I've learned, what I've learned about Rachel over the years with her sleep talking and sleepwalking and what have you, is that just because her eyes are open, just because her eyes are open does not mean she's seeing clearly. Just because her eyes are open doesn't mean she's seeing clearly. Um, and there's a difference, and I, and I think the difference is, the difference between having your eyes open and seeing clearly it's all about availability. It's about availability because when Rachel is sleep talking, she's talking about something random, she'll have her eyes open, she'll be pointing, she'll be saying all kinds of stuff. She's not really available, right? She's not really in reality. She's not there with me. She's in some other place, some other world. She's not available to me. And as a result, she doesn't remember. She doesn't remember anything she said, anything she saw because she's not really available. Her eyes are open, but she's not really available I think I want to look at verse 36 right here about this because I think it tells us a little bit about Jesus and and how he sees. It says in verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. This word for compassion, what it really means is to be deeply moved. Now, people debate about what it can mean in other situations. It can mean anger in other situations. Here, it definitely means compassion, but it means to be deeply moved. When Jesus saw these people that were harassed and helpless, these people that he had been healing and touching their lives, when he saw these people, he was deeply moved. 
And you know, the reason, the reason I think Jesus was deeply moved is because he was available. He was available. When Jesus was around people, it doesn't matter who he's with, it doesn't matter where he is at, when he is with people in the Bible, he is completely available to them. I'm talking about physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, where Jesus is, he is completely available. Whoever he's around, they, they can come right up to him. And as a matter of fact, I think that's one of the reasons people were so attracted to Jesus. Now, obviously, he's going to be famous. He's doing miracles. He's doing a lot of great things. I mean, I would be attracted to this guy. I would probably go see him. I would want to see what it's all about. But one of the main reasons I think people really wanted to come to him and get close to him, and he constantly had crowds around him, is because people thought, if I can just get close to Jesus, if I can just see Jesus, if I can climb up into this tree, if I can see Jesus, if I can just get close enough to hear his voice, if I can maybe be around some of his disciples, if I can just touch Jesus, maybe he'll heal me. Maybe he'll heal me because he was so available. He wasn't picking and choosing. He was available to the people around him. That's why we see, I think, in Matthew chapter 9, we see a lot of different um, healing stories in Matthew chapter 9, but we see this woman that comes up to Jesus, and she's been bleeding for years, and she, she comes up to Jesus. Jesus doesn't even see her. She doesn't even say his name for all we know. She just goes up, and she touches Jesus, and she's healed. She touches Jesus, and she's healed, and Jesus turns around because he feels the power come out of him, and he says, you know, your faith has healed you. Basically, this woman thought, man, if I can just touch him, I don't even have to get his attention. I don't even have to ask him. If I can just go and touch him, maybe I'll be healed. That's how available Jesus was. Jesus was available, and as a result, when he saw needs in the world, he had compassion. When he saw people that had great need, he had compassion. He was deeply moved. When was the last time you've been deeply moved by something? When was the last time you were like, man, that really touched me? When was the last time you really felt compassion deep inside of you? Maybe it moved you to tears. For me, and this is, this is, this is terrible, for me, I'm touched far more often by a book that I read or by a movie I see on my television or by a television show or by the news or by an article I read in the newspaper than I am by the people that live right next to me in my own city I'm touched far more often by those things. I'm touched far more often by fictional characters than I am by real people that are really hurting and live in a real city that's the same one I live in. They live right next door, my neighbors. And I'm touched more by something I read in a book. And if you're that way this morning, we've got to find ways. We've got to find ways to make ourselves available to the outside world. Because the reason we're touched so much by books and by movies and things like that it's because we're available. We make ourselves completely available. We, we give it our, 100% of our attention. We're involved. We're invested. And so if we want to do that in the real world, in the world we live in, if we want to see more like Jesus, if we want to have compassion like Jesus had, we've got to find ways to make ourselves available. We've got to find ways to make ourselves available because the truth is we're not just going to stumble into compassion. And there are a lot of ways, I think, to make yourself more available, a lot of things you can do. Part of it's just a mindset, I think. But one of the easiest things and one of the most practical things we can do is to make a positional change. It's to make a positional change. And what I mean by positional change is we've got to go somewhere. We've got to go somewhere. And when we go somewhere, I'm talking about somewhere outside of this church, somewhere outside of our homes, maybe somewhere outside of our normal work environment. We've got to make a change. We've got to go somewhere. And that's one of the reasons, one of the reasons I think Care Effect is such a good opportunity at this church. If you're not normally here. Care Effect um, 
is, is what we call our ministries that we do throughout the week that are, that are mostly compassion ministries throughout the city. There are multiple of them. Um, but one of the greatest things about Care Effect is that a lot of times these teams, not every team, but a lot of the teams, they're going somewhere. They're not here. When you come here on Wednesday night, you're not going to see these teams here for the most part. They're going to be out in the city. They're going to be where people have needs. And you know what that does? That makes us available. It makes us available to people that we normally wouldn't even give a second look. It makes us available to needs that we normally wouldn't see, to places that we normally wouldn't go. It makes us available. One of the most practical things we can do is make a positional change. If we want to see clearly, if we want to see Jesus, more like Jesus, we've got to open our eyes. We've got to open our eyes. And if we open our eyes, and if we made ourselves more available, would it change what we see? Would it change what we see when we walk out these doors? First thing we've got to do is open our eyes. The second thing we've got to do is face reality. Face reality. Now, if opening our eyes was all about being available to the world around us, facing reality is all about being accountable, being accountable to the problems we see. It says in Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Jesus has a choice right here. When he sees the crowds, he has compassion. He makes himself available. Jesus has a choice. It's a choice that all of us face if we're involved in ministry for very long, if we commit ourselves to ministry. It's a choice we're going to have to face often. After seeing the crowds, after opening his eyes, after becoming available and seeing the problem that exists, Jesus can either face reality, face the harsh reality of what these people are going through, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how big the problem is, he can stick with them, he can engage the problem, he can, he can face reality, or he can turn away. He can turn away, he can try to forget, he can think, man, maybe, just maybe, somebody else will do this job for me if I just forget about it. Maybe, man, I'm not qualified, I can't do this. Now, for many of you who are familiar with Jesus, especially Jesus through the Gospels, for many of you, you know, Jesus isn't really the kind of guy to turn away. And I think we see that in the last five words of Matthew 9:36, in the last five words of 9:36, it says, "When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless." And these are the five words I want us to think about: like sheep without a shepherd, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, how in the world do I get that Jesus faced reality with these five words? Isn't this just another observation? Isn't it just saying these people are harassed and helpless? They kind of look like sheep without a shepherd. But I think this is this is a lot more. What Jesus is saying in these five words is a lot more than just an observation. What I think Jesus is saying is a diagnosis. He's diagnosing these people. He's saying these people, what the real problem is, is they don't have a shepherd. They don't have a shepherd. This harassed and helpless, this observation they're harassed and helpless, this reality that he sees, this harsh reality, this is just a symptom of the real problem. The real problem is that these people don't have a shepherd. I hope this week, if you have time, um, we don't really have time to discuss it this much. I hope you'll look at Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. Try to remember that this week. Try to look at that maybe this afternoon when you go home tonight. Because Ezekiel chapter 34 will give you an idea of what this diagnosis really means. Where this diagnosis comes from. Because Jesus is not the first to make this diagnosis. God makes this diagnosis through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 34. And it's an amazing passage. It's a passage that, that really speaks to my heart. It's a passage that'll step on your toes a little bit. So be careful when you open it up because I think it speaks to us directly. 
But it's a passage that will explain this diagnosis. But that's not what I really want to talk about. What I really want you guys to see this morning is that having opened his eyes to the opportunity, having opened his eyes to the problem, to the problem that existed around him, Jesus didn't do that just so he could turn away. He didn't open his eyes to a problem just to say, this problem is too overwhelming. I can't handle this. I'm going to turn away. He didn't make himself available just to do that. Jesus faced reality. He faced reality long enough to make a diagnosis. He faced reality long enough to make a diagnosis. And the question I have for you this morning is do we stick around long enough? When we see problems in our city, when we see things in our city that move us, because I know you you see a lot of things in our city probably that move you when you're available, do we stick around for the diagnosis? Do we stick around to make a diagnosis and to say, oh, this is what's really going on? Do we do the hard work? Can we face reality? Or do the problems overwhelm us? For many of us here, facing reality is going to be our greatest struggle because we're going to see the problem and we're going to be moved by the problem. We're going to be moved by the people that the problem is affecting. But the more we think about the problem, after we go home, we may be pumped up to start with, but the more we think about the problem, we're like, man, this is overwhelming. This problem's overwhelming. This problem's been around for hundreds of years. How can I stop this problem? This problem's not just here. It's everywhere. It's in the United States. It's in the world. It's everywhere. I'm not qualified to do this. How am I going to find the help to do this? And after all of those doubts and all of those thoughts and being scared and terrified, we turn away. We turn away from the problem. But the truth is, it doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be like that. Over the past few months, I've had an opportunity to work with a guy who I think illustrates this principle of facing reality perfectly. Um, it's, It's been amazing to me to see what he's done and, and, and the journey that he's been on. Um, this guy, months ago, this guy saw a school in our city, made himself available to a school in our city, opened his eyes to this school, and he saw a problem. He saw a school filled with students who were destined to failure. Students that wouldn't have the opportunities that his kids have. Students that wouldn't have the opportunities that your kids have because they're stuck in a cycle of poverty that begins in impoverished single-parent homes predominantly and often ends, not always, but often ends in illiteracy, joblessness, imprisonment, and for some it ends in an early death. And you know what? It's hard not to have compassion when you see that because these children, they didn't make this situation They didn't choose this situation. They wouldn't have wanted to be born into this, I don't think. And so it's easy, it's easy to see a problem like that and have compassion. So while I do commend him for making himself available enough to see the problem, that's not what really impresses me about him. What impresses me is that having seen the problem, this problem that's huge, this problem that's unending, this problem that's going on for years and years and years and has no ending, after seeing this problem that seems impossible to find a solution to, he doesn't turn away from it. 
He doesn't turn away from it. No, he squares his shoulders and he dives right in. And he does, he does some things. He begins to research the problem. Every time I talked to him over the past few months, he had a new article that he had read about the problem. He began to schedule meetings and he met with administration and he met with teachers and counselors and different things to ask them, man, what, what can we do? What can we do to help these students? He planned, he organized, he invited other people to help him, volunteers. That's facing reality. That's facing reality. And you know what? If you asked him today, man, do you, do you know what all this is going to lead to? Do you know what the result's going to be? Do you know how many people you're actually going to help? How many kids you're actually going to help? Have you, have you found a solution? I guarantee you this guy would say, no way, man. No way. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where this is going to lead. I don't know what kids I'm going to be able to invest in and who I'm going to be able to help. I don't know if I'm doing exactly the right thing right now. I don't know what the solution is. But you know what? I guarantee you, having seen the problem, having opened his eyes to the problem in this school, this guy's not turning back. He's not turning back. He's decided, this is what I'm going to do. I've seen this problem. I can't turn away from it now. He's faced reality. What if we all faced reality? What if we all faced the problems that we open our eyes to? What if we all faced them? like this guy did? What if we all faced reality? Would it change what we see? Would it change what we see? Would it change how we respond? We've got to open our eyes. We've got to face reality. And the final thing I think we have to do, final thing we need to consider at least, is we need to recognize potential. We need to recognize potential. If you look at Matthew 9 again, just to kind of give the verse leading up to it as well, 9, 36 and 37. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's as far as we've gotten so far. But then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. When Jesus looked around him and he looked at the people that he had healed, that he'd been talking to, he looked at the leper he looked at the blind, the mute, the paralytic. He looked at the sinner, the outcast, the poor, the destitute, the lowest of low, the dregs of society. When he looked at these people that nobody else really wants to look at, I'm telling you that are pretty hard to look at for us as well if we're completely honest sometimes. When he looks at these people, he turns to his disciples and he says, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. He doesn't say, he doesn't turn to his disciples and he doesn't say, maybe like I would say or some of us would say, man, these weeds are plentiful. Disciples, go get all the herbicides you can find. You know what I mean? He doesn't turn to his disciples and say, the weeds are plentiful. Go grab your hoe. We've got some work to do. When he looks at his disciples, when he talks to his disciples, he says, the harvest is plentiful. Because when Jesus saw these people, he saw value. He saw great value. He saw these people as, as men and women that were created in the image of God. And when he looked at them, he saw the harvest. He saw value. Warren Buffett 
is a guy I think probably all of you are familiar with, or at least the majority of you are familiar with. Warren Buffett is, the, I think, the CEO, the chairman, and the primary shareholder of an investment company called Berkshire Hathaway. Um, he's consistently ranked in probably the top 10 of the world's richest people. He's, he's generally ranked in the top two of the United States' richest people. Him and Bill Gates kind of go back and forth from time to time. Um, but, but this guy, this guy is, a, is a pretty amazing guy to me when I look at him because Warren Buffett doesn't produce anything. He doesn't really make anything. He didn't invent the computer. He didn't somehow find the recipe to Coca-Cola, you know? He didn't invent anything. But what Warren Buffett does is he sees potential. He sees potential in things. He recognizes potential at an alarming rate like nobody else can do. When he sees things, for some reason, maybe he's, he's I'm sure he's fortunate. I mean, you've got to say part of it's just he's fortunate. Um, but he has a talent for looking at a company and seeing potential, knowing what, what's going to do well. I, I saw a statistic in the New York Times the other day that said, if you invested $1,000 with Warren Buffett in 1965, and for some of you, it would have had to have been your parents um, or your grandparents or whatever, but if you would have invested $1,000 with Berkshire Hathaway, not put anything else in, $1,000 is all you have to do. That principle, put it down, 1965, by 2007, you would have been a millionaire. You would have been a millionaire from $1,000 to over a million dollars in 40 years. That's how consistent this guy has been. That how, that's how consistently you know, just, just at the, the highest level, Berkshire Hathaway has produced um, good stocks and, 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 and picked wisely and recognized potential. If we recognize potential like Warren Buffett, if all of us in here had done that, if, we, if only we would have known, if we would have recognized potential like Warren Buffett recognized potential, we would all be incredibly rich. We would all be incredibly wealthy for a little while. For a little while. For a few trips around the sun, for a few years, we would all be incredibly wealthy. But you know, if we recognized potential, like Jesus recognizes potential, if we saw what Jesus saw, we would be wealthy for eternity. We would be eternally wealthy. The Bible, the Bible is not clear on everything, but the Bible is completely clear about the fact that if we recognize potential like Jesus recognized potential, if we care about the things that Jesus cares about, if we commit ourselves to the things that Jesus commits himself to, we will be wealthy for eternity. Wealthy forever. If we spent a little more time trying to recognize potential like Jesus does for ministry, and spend a little less time trying to recognize potential like Warren Buffett does, would it change what we see? Would it change what we see? This morning we've talked about three different things. Opening our eyes, do we make ourselves available? Facing reality, are we really accountable to the things we see? And thirdly, recognizing potential. Do we recognize potential like Jesus recognizes potential? What do you see? When you walk out these doors, are you seeing the same thing that Jesus sees? I want to close this morning 
with a video. Um, and so, Eric, if you would go ahead and, and cue that video. It's only a minute long, and then I'll conclude. Look at this video. What do you see? What do you see? Anna, just this past week, Anna Palmer, the missions minister here, um, just this past week had a meeting um, with a lady that works for the Department of Child and Family Services here in Orleans Parish. And she had a meeting with her. And, and one of the things they discussed, and one of the things we didn't make as clear on the video, is that every day there's the potential that they will have to take a child that comes into custody to another part of our state. There's the potential that they'll have to separate them from their siblings and move them to a different part of our state because you know what? There's not enough people in our city willing to take children that need them when they're the most desperate, when they have the most questions, when they're the most anxious, where they have the least amount of security. There's not enough people in our city to take these kids in their homes. I can't imagine what these kids are going through when they come out of the house, they're ripped from their homes. And then because there's not enough people here, they're often ripped from their siblings. Not enough houses in Orleans Parish to take them. They're ripped from their school, from their teachers that often care about them so much and have invested so much time in them. They're ripped from their friends. Everything is taken from them. This is a problem. This is a problem in our city. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into his harvest field. This morning, what we want to ask you guys to do, Robert is going to play a song. We're going to do our invitation a little bit differently. It's going to be a two-song invitation instead. Um, the first song, what I ask you to do is to pray. And not just during this next three and a half minutes that they're going to play a song. I ask you to pray for the rest of the week. I ask you to commit to praying and asking God, Lord, what would you have me to do to respond to this problem in our city? There's a problem that exists what would you have me do to respond? Next week, I hope you're here. We're gonna talk about opportunities for our church to get involved, for opportunities for our church as a whole to take, to take this foster care, to take adoption and put it under our wing a little bit and to help families that wanna do foster care. We're gonna talk about that next week, but for this week, we just want you to ask God, God, what would you have me do? 
commit to praying this week. Guys, there's a problem in our city. And if we're not careful, if we don't open our eyes, if we don't face the reality, if we don't recognize potential, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. So take this time and ask God, what would you have me do, Lord? What would you have me do with your sheep?